836. This is Jeff Wagner. A very soggy good morning to you. 620 WTMJ. Um, stock market up big to start off. Dow Jones uh, within just a couple minutes of the stock market opening up 130 points. Uh, the NASDAQ up almost 50. What, what happened is that at the end of the day yesterday, the Federal Reserve Chief uh, Janet Yellen testified that the, the Fed, which has been raising rates gradually, said that they, they think they're pretty much done with raising rates and that any other rates uh, increases are going to be gradual and that um, you shouldn't expect any massive surprises. Wall Street is responding very, very well to that. So, like I say, it could be a big day. At least initially, it looks like it could be a big day for the stock market. That would be very good. We start off today's show like we start off every show. Three big things. Um, I, I will tell you, coming up in about 20 minutes, I'm going to try to provide some common sense on this whole Donald Trump Jr. thing. And I I am being inundated by people on either side of the issue. You've got the, the hate Trump crowd. This is it. This is the smoking gun. This is going to lead to impeachment. They're going to throw the whole darn Trump family in prison. No, no, they're not. You, you need to get a grip, and I will explain why. On the other hand, I'm also getting the emails from the We Love Trump crowd. If you talk about this, I hope you don't buy into the liberal media spin on this. There is nothing to this. This is just part of the witch hunt. No, no, that's not true either. I will give you the common sense analysis of what this whole thing with Donald Trump and sitting down with the lawyer from Russia really means and where it should lead to. So that's coming up in just a couple minutes. I, I want to start with big story number one, and we, we do this from time to time. There are certain experiences that that are just shared for all of us. Now, maybe, you know, sometimes, okay, some people are baseball fans, some people aren't. Some people care very much about what the Brewers or the Packers do, other people don't. So when we talk about that, I always understand it excludes some folks because you just don't care. When we talk about politics, some people are really, really into politics. Other people say politics doesn't mean anything for my life. I, I just don't care. There is one topic that affects us all. And, and that is the issue of weather. Now, over the last couple days, we've we've seen just an enormous amount of rain, particularly falling in the southern portion of our listening area, you know, Kenosha and Racine. But we, we've all gotten uh, just a, a ton of rain. But there's been, you know, one system after another coming through. The, the term that they use is training, like it's just a train, one train after another. The the good news is that the the third storm system since last night is over us now, but as I look at the radar, it's you can see the back edge, um, and it's it's moving out and it's moving through. Now, the back edge for people who live, well, north of, say, I-94, that's a lot closer. <laughs> um, if you live in the southern portion of our listening area, the back edge goes all the way out to Madison. So it looks like, if you're, again, in the southern portion of our listening area, that this rain is going to be going on for uh, a while Northern, the farther north you go, while it's raining now, looks like it's, it's starting to, to clear up, which is a good thing. But we've all had a ton of rain. But some people, I mean, these rain totals, yesterday you saw some of these storms, rain gauges were saying five inches, and they're talking about, you know, more. This is before we've had this. And there's all the reports of flooding. And we will, of course, keep you updated on, you know, what's going on on the roadways. Essentially, some are flooded. It is incredible. The report this morning that the Hiawatha service, which runs between Milwaukee and Chicago, and those trains, those trains always run. The train service is now suspended because the tracks are flooded. So, 
that's, I know, causing all sorts of consternation to people, you know, business people who depend on that. But that shows how much rain we have had, and that shows how bad the flooding is. In any event, what I wanted to do, because this, that, let's face it, this is the, the biggest story. When you have events like this, it, it impacts, you know, Rain in your backyard, rain in your basement, flooding, all those different types of issues. I, I want to open up the program with what I would consider to be sort of an electronic town hall. Our number is 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I want to talk about the weather. How has the recent heavy rainfall, whether it was yesterday or today, how has this impacted on you? Is this sort of is this an unprecedented type of thing? Because I, I will tell you, I mean, I remember back in 2010 when we had the massive rainfall, you know, five inches of rain in a couple hours, the big sinkhole on Oakland Avenue. Pretty much everybody had, you know, flooding throughout the entire area. Um, you know, lots of people's basements were flooded, which led to all sorts of different flood mitigation plans. I, I don't get the sense that the flooding has been as bad thus far. And I know the rain over the course of the last couple of days has had a huge impact. So let's open up the phone lines, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What have you been experiencing in the last day or so? Water in your backyard, water in your basement. Is this unprecedented? How have you been coping? 414-799-1620. We're back to discuss in just a minute. How has the weather been impacting you in the last day or so? And Again, the reports are that at least for much, much of the listing area, the rain is finally, at least for the time being, going to be over by mid-morning. 414-799-1620. Let's talk a little bit about how the weather has affected you over the course of the last 24 to 36 hours. It's our electronic town hall. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 845, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. After a father accidentally kills his daughter during a fireworks display, the question now becomes, what, if any, prosecution should he face? Do you think he deserves some sort of punishment, or is the tragedy punishment enough? Scafidi and Bilstadt take your calls, 1235, here on WTMJ. All right, uh, if we go to our text line, our number, by the way, 414-799-1620, impact of the weather. We have a text here. I'm in Pewaukee, a mile north of I-94 on Highway 164. I checked my rain gauge. I have 5.1 inches of rain since last night. 5.1 inches of rain since last night. That's just, that's crazy amounts of rain. And my guess is, you know, Pewaukee isn't one of the areas that's been hit hardest. I mean, my guess is you're certainly looking at in a lot of parts in the southern portion of our listening area, Kenosha, Racine County, down further by the state line. You're, you're, I'm sure you're looking at over a foot of rain over the course of the last, you know, day or so with more continuing to come. Just an, an amazing thing. And one of the, the good stories is that unlike in 2010, where you had massive flooding, massive sewer backups, you're not hearing those reports. I do think, in general, we learned something after the flooding in 2010, and things are getting a little bit better. But, of course, it is providing the, the, the huge problems. Um, you know, one of our producers just came in, said you know, he was driving from Moreland Road to the studios here on Capitol Drive in Humboldt. Normally, it would be a drive that would take you 20 minutes or so over an hour just to get in and particularly once you get into downtown milwaukee just an absolute and total nightmare like i say the good news about all this is that it appears 
this round of rain moving through relatively quickly. And at least for the time being, once this rain is out of here, they're not predicting any more, at least for a few more hours. Who knows what's going to happen? But one of those experiences where, again, you've got all these things going on. If you see the standing water, for goodness sakes, be careful. Don't drive through the standing water. Um, Be cautious. Take your time uh, as we deal with what is, again, Mother Nature expressing herself. All right. Coming up in two minutes. Big story number two. All right surveillance videos are not being released because people are concerned that folks might be racially insensitive. I'll tell you the story and where this is happening. Stick around. It's 848. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 850. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Not necessarily surprising, but disappointing news. A Brennan's Market, which has been an institution in Wisconsin. Um, of course, they have five stores um, and a New Glarus production facility. You know, a wonderful market, I think, known a lot for its produce and for its cheeses. Um, they've got one in Monroe, one in Oconomowoc, one in Brookfield, one in Madison, um, and... Uh, two in Madison, I guess, just announcing this morning that they're closing all the stores. They've said that uh, the growth of competition and new options for consumers has made Brennan's Market's business model unsustainable. This is a company that's been in business since 1942, and uh, that's it, it's it's one of the things. In some respects, this is a golden age for grocery shopping in our listening area because you have all these different choices that are out there. You have all the national retailers or regional retailers that are moving in. You've got all the different competition on choices. You've got the big box retailers, the Walmarts and the Costcos of the world. But the problem is a lot of the little guys are, are getting squeezed out. That's just the reality. And um you see that with Brennan's, which has just always been an outstanding store, high quality. But um, they're announcing uh, that they are closing all their stores um, and their Nuclearis production facility on September 30th. 150 people are going to lose their job, and it brings an end to a 75-year-old company. Um, they just, they're saying, essentially, our business model is no longer relevant following the recession of nearly 10 years ago. They just couldn't come back and apparently just decided they could not compete with the grocery market as it exists now. And um, it's just, I guess that's life in the real world, but it is unfortunate. All right. Um, If you have ever been to San Francisco or Oakland, one of the ways that you get around is something is, I call it the subway. It's actually called the BART, Bay Area Rapid Transit. And it, it goes under San Francisco Bay. So, for example, last time I was out there, which was a number of years ago, we stayed in San Francisco, but we're doing things in, in Oakland. And so the easiest way to do it, we stayed in downtown San Francisco, so you'd walk to the to the subway station, to the BART station, you'd hop on, and then you know, you'd know you go under the bay and you'd end up in Oakland. It was clearly the easiest way to get around. Lots and lots of commuters use it, and lots of lots of tourists use it because it is so easy to get around. They have had a problem recently with youth crime. April 22nd, 40 to 60 kids boarded a train by the Oakland Coliseum. That's where, like, the Oakland A's play. And um, robbed seven passengers, beating up two. So big mob of kids storm onto the train. They start robbing passengers, beating people up. Um, June 28th, a group of four kids assaulted a passenger, beat him up, made off with his cell phone couple days after that, a woman is on a train. About a dozen teenagers get on 
um, and they beat her up, snatch her phone, and, and run off. All these incidents are captured on surveillance video. The Bay Area Rapid Transit authorities are refusing to release the surveillance video. Why are they refusing to release it? Is it because they're concerned that this is going to compromise an ongoing criminal investigation? No, it's not that. They are refusing to release the video because these incidents, the kids, the teenagers involved, I believe are all African-American. They're all black. And as a result of that, I mean, here's here, here's what's going on. Um, some of the you know, some of the supervisors are asking, you know, why aren't we, we making this public? And here's the explanation that was given to release these videos would create a high level of racially insensitive commentary towards the district. In addition, it would create a racial bias in the riders against minorities on the train. Um, the agency says these are petty crimes. They don't want to make the BART look crime-ridden. Further, it would unfairly affect and characterize riders of color, leading to sweeping generalizations in media reports. So in other words, we've got large groups of black kids that are jumping on the trains and are beating up passengers and robbing them. But we can't tell, we don't feel comfortable telling the general public that there's large groups of black kids who are doing this because we don't think the general pro- public can effectively process that information. All right, um, you know, one of the one of the people that works for BART says, I, I don't understand what role the color of one's skin plays in the issue of whether to divulge information, um, you know, et cetera. Okay, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. From time to time around here, in the 20 years plus that I've been doing a radio show in this market, there have been media outlets that I believe – They will deny it, but I believe have made a conscious decision to try to do what I'm going to describe as called sanitize the news. The police have put out descriptions of suspects, and media outlets have made conscious decisions to omit the race of the suspects over the years. Drove me crazy because, again, if, if there is a suspect out there or there is a crime that has been committed and you're looking for someone, what could be more descriptive than including, you know, besides the age, including the race? But 414-799-1620, I think it is, and this is big story number two, I think it is absolutely outrageous that you've got evidence that documents a crime that's being committed in public, but you're making the decision, in this case it's the BART authorities, making a decision that they're not going to release this to the public, essentially because they don't trust the public to be able to process this 414-799-1620 um that is the accurate mortgage talk and text line let's start with steve in sussex steve you're first good morning good morning um first time uh first time on the air uh thank you for sure. thank you for bringing this up um i'm sitting there and i'm taking a look at crime statistics and we have you know um african americans which are a minority of the population uh performing the majority of crime i mean you can sit well, there it, it, say, it, well but it depends on where, i mean again it depends on i mean steve i'm mean, thanks to call i mean i, I don't, don't want to go down that right it, it depends on you know where you're looking and you know what what the population centers are but this to me again it's it's not an indictment of the african-american community but it is it's just a reality if you've got a large group in this case of black kids 
who are jumping on the train and beating people up and taking stuff, and you've got surveillance video of it, it seems to me that that is relevant and that that surveillance video, if you would disclose it, if it was going to be, you know, two white kids, why wouldn't you disclose it if it was going to be some African-American kids? The reality is the reality. And for, you know, a public agency to try to sanitize stuff, number one, because of racial concerns, and number two, because, well, we don't think people would process it. We don't want to get the idea that pe- people to get the idea that, gee, the, the BART is, is crime-ridden. Well, okay. If you've got a bunch of people that are on there and there's 40 or 50 kids that storm on and go on a wilding thing, don't you think the general public is entitled to know that? 414-799-1620 is the number. Paul on the North Shore. Paul, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning, Jeff. Thanks for taking the call. Sure. You know, we just had an Amber Alert in southeast Wisconsin this morning, and when they broadcast it, the first thing they said was black female. Yeah. And then they gave age and height. So and and the mother's description as well, also black female. Yeah. So how come it's okay when there's an emergency or an Amber Alert, but when it's you know a, a crime-ridden issue, right. uh, we yeah. can't describe that. Well, and and it and it is right. It is. I mean, and in this particular case, now, admittedly, that the crime is after the fact. I don't know if they were looking for suspects or not, but still, you've got a you've got a video. This is what ended up happening. Why should we decide we're going to sanitize this? We're going to try to pretend it didn't. Now, thanks to call Paul. Call Paul, the call Paul. Try saying that three times fast at eight fifty-five in the morning. All right, we're going to continue this for one more segment, and then we move into big thing number three. I'm going to explain what the Donald Trump Jr. stuff really means. But if you're on the line, please hold on. If you want to join us, four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Okay, the folks that run this Bay Area Rapid Transit system are they're very upfront about it. They have crimes that are being committed by young black kids they have made the conscious decision not to release surveillance videos in their possession because it shows young black kids committing the crime are they doing the public a disservice we discuss we continue the conversation if you're on the line please sit on it's 909 this is jeff wagner glad to have you with us we're right in the middle of our three big things big story number two in San Francisco, if you want to get around, they've got a subway system. It's called the Bay Area Rapid Transit System. It goes under the bay, and, and I mean, I've been on it several occasions. It's a great way to get around. Over the last couple months, they've had some very highly publicized incidents where groups, and in one case up to 40 to 60, groups of, like, teenagers who are, they're being described, my understanding is they're black kids, African-American youths. Um, they're being described as, as persons of color, but I, I think, from what I'm able to glean, they're, they're like groups of black kids who have gotten on the, the train and have robbed people. There was an incident where 40 to 60 got on. And it was kind of one of these wilding incidents, and they beat some people up and took cell phones, a couple other incidents like this as well. It's all captured on surveillance video. The Bay Area Rapid Transit, the BART authorities, are refusing to release the surveillance video because they say... Um, it would make them look racially insensitive, and it would essentially heighten and flame racial concerns and racial divides. Also, they don't want to give the impression that the Bay Area Rapid Transit System is is dangerous. Um, well, okay, people already know that there's this stuff going on. But I have to tell you, this politically correct stuff just absolutely infuriates me. I mean, if you've got evidence that a crime is being committed, if the surveillance video would normally be made public, which it would be, to decide that we're not going to allow people to see it because people can't process the fact that, oh, gee, the people who are committing this crime happen to be black or whatever, that that's... 
That's just absolutely absurd. It is what it is. Let's talk to Bob in Richfield. Bob, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning, Jeff. How are you? I'm well, thank you. What do you think about all this? Well, Jeff, I'm a retired Milwaukee police officer, almost 28 years on the job. So I've done thousands of interviews um, of crime victims. And when you ask them, what did the person look like? The first thing that they tell you is the color of the person. Sure. It's a white guy. Black it was a male, black or male, or whatever. A white sure. Female, yeah. Or it was a Hispanic male. Yeah. That's the first thing that comes out of their mouth. So I think it's a huge disservice not to tell people from, you know, for the media not to tell people or the transit system not to tell people what to look out for. Now, the other thing with descriptions is if, if you are uh, interviewing multiple people that have seen the same description right. of the same incident, the one constant that you get, actually two, are the color and the, and the uh, um, sex of the person. You can interview five people and have five different heights, five different weights, three different uh, clothing descriptions, but the constants are the race and the sex. Yep. And that's what you need to get out to the public so the public can be aware of what's going on around them and and yeah. know what to look out for. Well, also, my understanding, and I, I guess I, I stand to be corrected, but I don't think I'm wrong, is that they haven't made arrests in connection with these things. If you've got a surveillance video, I mean, how often do we see on the news that the police have released the surveillance video? Hey, this is the guy that robbed the quickie store or whatever, or these, these are the pictures of the bank robbers. If anybody knows them, call with information. You release the surveillance video, and there's at least a chance that somebody might say, hey, hey, that's my next-door neighbor's kid, or, or whatever. Right, I, I, exactly. What? The other thing that bothers me is if a police officer gets involved in a shooting, you many, many times hear, oh, it was a white police officer right. or a black police officer that was involved in the shooting. So if you're going to do that, put it all out there and, and make the public aware. And you're right. Um, the media is putting stuff out there uh, to inform the public so the public can uh, come forward and help the police to say, I know that guy. Right. I mean, yeah. I and mean, thanks for calling. I mean, there's just there. It seems to me there's no the, the only and they're, they're in fairness to the Bart people. The only they're very upfront. They're saying the reason we are not releasing this is that we think it's going to open us up to claims that we are if fanning the flames of racial hatred and essentially that you know we don't think people are going to be able to process this information. Well, for, forget about political correctness. Let's talk about safety and let's talk about facts. And again, I don't care if this was a group of 40, you know, white teenagers that got on the train and did the same thing, I I'd want the surveillance video released. I mean that that's it is what happened. There's no legitimate reason not to make it public and not to show people what happened and to say that, okay, because it's one group of people that did this or one a group of, you know, people, a certain, you know, ethnic group or racial group or whatever that did this as opposed to another and we're going to withhold it is just, it's insulting. Mary in Milwaukee. Mary, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Um, yeah, isn't this a government agency, and isn't that the purpose of the videos, I, and isn't it paid with tax dollars? Yes, yes, and yes. If it's another crime, this would be withholding of evidence and obstruction of justice? Well, I, I, I guess, I mean, they, they've made the, I mean, thanks for calling me, Mary, I mean, they, they've made the... They've made the video available to the police. They've just not made it available to the general public because they don't think you or I or any of the people that ride the, the BART 
has the ability to process this so that you, you know, people are going to get on the BART and they're going to look and they're going to see some 17-year-old black guy and they're automatically going to assume that that kid's going to rob them. They, they just don't think that we can process that sort of information, so we have to pretend that things did not occur. Give me a break. Jane in Brookfield. Jane, you're on 620 WTMJ. Hi. Good morning. Um, I, good morning. Um, I actually, when I, I'm a case manager, I went to school for human services, and one of my psychology classes, we were talking in regards, you know, about race, and my professor was actually a black male, and one of my classmates said that her daughter was um, describing another classmate, and she says, well, she said she was black, and I told her, you can't do that, and I said, why? It's a describing factor. I'll say I'm white, I'm of European descent, the other person is of African-American descent. Or, I'm sorry, African-American. Right. Yeah. I, you know, people are getting way too over-sensitized just because you use the word black doesn't mean you're using it in a in a well, way that's degrading the person. Well, well no, and, and this idea that, gee, if we show what happened, if we show a crime scene, if we show a crime right. being committed, and it happens to be being committed by certain members of, of whatever group, that folks aren't going right. to be able to process that, so we have to just pretend it didn't occur or pretend, you know, the facts aren't the facts. That's just insulting to all of us. I mean, just show oh, yeah. show the darn video. You've got the surveillance video. Show the darn video and then let people, you know, decide. Yeah, um, no, well, I, no, I think the oh sorry no, the, the officer that um, you spoke with too they you know there can be certain like he was saying certain behaviors that these individuals or certain ways they're acting that's going to happen before they do this to people and if people can kind of see that video and watch out for that like yeah. you said they can protect themselves so. it, it is I mean th- yeah. it, it, again it's the it's just it's the facts I mean that that's the idea I. I'm not saying you have to make a, a big deal about it, but if, if it is the facts, and like I say, if this was, you know, 30 or 40 Hispanic kids that were in the mob that did it, or 30 or 40 white kids, or 30 or 40 green kids, or, or whatever, if, if it happened and you would normally make this available either as a way of informing the public or alerting the public to decide that you're not going to make it available, again, because you're worried about, gee, the racial makeup of the perpetrators and people not being able to process it. I mean, give me a break. All right, big thing, number three coming up. I am I'm probably not going to make any of you happy, but I'm going to try to make sense of what's been going on with the Donald Trump Jr. matter and no He's not going to jail. But no, he didn't. It was an incredibly dumb thing to do. Stick around. We'll discuss. It's 917. This is Jeff Wagner. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. Milwaukee area businessman Andy Gronick has decided to run for the Democratic nomination to challenge Governor Walker next fall. Who is Gronick and what are his platforms? Find out when he goes one-on-one with John McCure at 420 today during Wisconsin's afternoon news. Okay, big story number three. And I I, I understand going into this that I'm going to irritate people on, on both sides. I have a number of people who listen to the show who are sort of the the tinfoil, we hate Trump crowd. 
Trump is going to prison. Trump is going to destroy the planet. We hate, we hate, we hate, we hate Trump, who are just absolutely unhinged, the folks that I think have MSNBC on 24-7, and the Donald Trump can do absolutely nothing right. So I've got that crowd, and then I have, I know there's some other people out there who just um, have completely rose-colored glasses when it comes to looking at this president and saying, oh, it, it, it's nothing, anytime you say anything bad about this guy, it's, it's nothing but a, it, it's nothing but part of the fake news and the, the whole liberal cycle, media spin cycle. And the truth, as it often is, is somewhere in between. All right, let me, let me give you some perspective, and then we're going to discuss this. And we talked about it a little bit yesterday, but I wanted to hold back on some things because I really, I wanted to take a look at the law and at least form my opinions. All right, after Donald Trump is on the, after he has pretty much secured the Republican nomination, he hasn't been nominated, but he's secured the nomination. Apparently, there's, he, his, the campaign, um, his kid, Donald Trump Jr., gets this email from some guy in Great Britain who's known to the Trump people who wants to broker a meeting between the Trump campaign, in this case, you know, Donald Trump Jr., and Somebody from from Russia turns out to be this this Russian lawyer, and the email says, "All right, she they've got dirt on on Hillary Clinton, and you know it's coming from the Russian government." So Donald Trump Jr. takes a meeting with this woman. The meeting lasts all of a half hour, and nothing comes of it. Um, There there is no dirt that they that they pass on. Nothing ends up coming of this, but he does take the meeting and he exchanges emails including things they think love it love it Let, let's let's see what they they've got there, there's no information that is passed on there's no suggestion that this woman had access to information that had come from for example hacks from of the, the of the democratic national committee it, it just it turns out to be a nothing burger but he took the meeting in the first place and then later on when they're making disclosures to Congress about, you know, different contacts that people involved with the Trump campaign have had with uh, people associated with the Russian government in one form or another, uh, they don't disclose this. So you, you have the allegations that there's a cover-up. Okay, so so let's inject some common sense here. First of all, for the We Hate Donald Trump crowd, who are calling on Donald Trump Jr. to be prosecuted and think this is an impeachable offense, Get a grip. I mean, the, the, the reality is, there's a couple things. First of all, the, there's no evidence. This is not any, no reasonable prosecutor would conclude that this is a conspiracy, for example, to, I don't hack into the DNC. It's not like they sat down and they had a meeting saying, hey, where the Russians had said, hey, we've got this information. We know how to hack into the DNC. Here, let's share this information with you. It's not like there is an ongoing conspiracy. So that's that's just not going to happen. Matter of fact, there's an interesting analysis by um, Alan Dershowitz, noted constitutional law professor, um, who, who just says, look, that, that's, that's not going to happen. This isn't a conspiracy. So then there's the question, did he violate campaign finance laws? Well, there, campaign finance laws say that contributions have to be reported. Now, most times contributions are direct contributions or cash contributions. Jane Matinere is running for U.S. Senate. I think Jane would be an outstanding candidate. I write her a check for $500. She has to report the fact that she got a check for $500 from me. There are also what is known as in-kind contributions, which are things of value 
things of value that aren't cash. For example, let's say that um, I think Jane would be a great member of the U.S. Senate, which I do. So I want to hold a a fundraiser for her. So I say, Jane, here, I'm going to host the fundraiser at my house. I'm going to provide the wine. I'm going to provide the food. I'm going to provide the beer. I'm going to invite my friends. All right. the, The cost of that party. The cost that it takes me, the, the, when I mail out invitations and the booze and the food, I pay for that. But that has to be reported by Jane on her campaign forms because it is what's called an in-kind contribution. It's not money I donated directly, but it's indirect money. There's other kinds of in-kind contributions as well. For example, let's say polls. It costs a bunch of money to do polling. So let's say... Let's say that Jane is running for Senate and I am running for governor and I'm putting a poll in the field. So I'm, I'm, I've hired a pollster. I'm paying for it. And the way polls work is you pay for every question. So I say, hey, Jane, I want to do you want here's what I'm going to do as part of my poll. I'm going to add a couple questions. And I'm going to ask about your name recognition, and I'm going to ask how you're, you know, how you're doing. Maybe I'll do a head-to-head matchup. I'm going to ask two or three questions that you could use. And so I get that information, and I share it with Jane. Um, the cost of those questions, that would be an in-kind contribution. She doesn't have to pay me, but she has to report that, hey, Jeff did something of value for me. So that's the difference between in-kind contributions and the actual cash contributions. I think it's pretty clear. There are some people who are suggesting that Donald Trump Jr. sitting down with this Russian lawyer who says, I've got some information about some dirt, that that would be an in-kind contribution, like hosting a party or giving them poll questions. I, I understand that there's a couple lawyers who want to bring down Trump who are trying to make that argument. That's nuts, too. That, that's There's no way in God's green earth that any responsible prosecutor would ever try to go on that theory. And if they did, the reality is there'd be candidates in jail right and left. If every time somebody says, hey, you know, I'm running against so-and-so, I've got some information, you're running against so-and-so, and did you know so-and-so's a drunk? Here, you, you can use that information. If somebody had to declare that information as an in-kind contribution, well, and you didn't, pretty much every candidate would be in jail. So... I don't think Donald Trump Jr. committed a crime. And I understand that there's some lawyers out there, some ethics people, particularly folks on the left who are getting like all hot and bothered about this and say, oh, this is a smoking gun. I don't think so. I, I don't. All right. So now that we've alienated all the hate Trump people, let's flip to the other side. I think it was incredibly stupid. And that's the word. That's a word I use advisedly, but it's a word I use. I think it was incredibly Stupid for Donald Trump Jr. to take a meeting like this in the first place. It was just, just dumb. And some of the email exchanges that he's sending back for, oh, love it if she's got this stuff. What did he think would, would happen? And the fact that they did not disclose this up front tells me that they knew that this was stupid and they knew that it was embarrassing. So at the end of the day, here's my take on all this. I I don't believe that there's any criminal activity here. I don't believe that there's anything that anybody's going to be prosecuted for. I don't believe that this is going to lead to information where there's any sort of impeachable offense, especially since everybody agrees that nothing came out of this meeting. Having said that, 
this is another one of these situations where the optics are just really bad. And it's another situation where this is what the media is going to be talking about for the next three, four, five days until the next Russian whatever shoe falls. And we're not going to be discussing the things that are important. So I believe, while not criminal, it was incredibly stupid for Donald Trump Jr. to take this meeting in the first place. And I can't believe that he did. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Maybe here's the way to go into this. On, on the level of scandal, with zero being no big deal and 10 being this is Watergate all over again, how do you see this? 414-799-1620. I give it, I, I would say, I give it about a three. I, I, there's no, I, in my opinion, there's nothing criminal here, but again, bad optics. But where do you come down on this? How big a scandal is this? How much should we care about this? Is this the development that I know the New York Times and the Washington Post and CNN and MSNBC, they hope this is going to be the development that brings down the Trump administration? We discuss next. It's 937, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. And I understand the anti-Trump people are out there. Oh, this is, the, the, the people are going to jail. I mean, there there is a law that says that you can't accept anything of value from a foreign government or a foreign national. There's a campaign finance law. Now, whether, gee, I, I have dirt on Hillary Clinton, um, let's have a meeting, and there turns out to be nothing that's, that's disclosed, there's nothing that's given. For anybody... I, Look, to, to suggest that somebody is going to bring charges on that or that they could ever get a conviction is just absurd. That's just the reality. I understand that disappoints some of the we hate Trump crowd, but I'm trying to bring you into the real world, get you out of that MSNBC bubble. On the other hand, I, I think to suggest that setting up this meeting in the first place, you get an email saying, hey, the Russian government has this stuff here, meet with somebody, even though there's nothing that's ever disclosed. What could you possibly have been thinking? Let's start with Bridget in Brookfield. You're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning, Jeff. I waited I waited for your voice so I could <laughs> comment on your statement regarding Trump Jr., that his actions were totally stupid. Yep. <laughs> I mean, uh, this is a time, does, has United States citizens, Trump included, have they forgotten what Russia has done to the world, to, the, to Europe? Yep. Uh, with um, bringing and taking forcefully people, innocent people, to Siberia that died. I mean, communism didn't go anyplace. It is, it is just under a new name. And right. Trump Jr. was taken by this guy from, the, from, from England. Yep. And, and he was just taken. And this, um, you know, I, I, I want to tell you, I have traveled to uh, Latvia many times, and I had to go through Moscow. I was so badly treated mm-hmm. by, by the um, airport uh, yep. people that it was so humiliating, and they have all kinds of tricks to get at you. They're never guilty. They have, they have never done anything wrong in the world, but the world is turning around them, and we should not be involved with, with Russia as such, especially... When it comes to our government, yeah, Bridget, and our I mean, president. No, thanks. Th- see, and I, I, I look. I agree. Russia is not our friend, 
And I mean, what I have said all along is, you know, now look, let, let's understand. I have no doubt that the U.S. tries to meddle. Let's use that phrase in, in elections. We we try. We want friendly governments to us. I have no doubt that whether it's the CNA, CIA, or whatever, we 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 try to affect elections across the world. So maybe it's no surprise that Russia is trying to do this. I think you know if there's evidence of Russia, and I I, I believe Russia was meddling in our elections and trying to hack into and hacking into things and stuff. You know we need to identify that and and we need to figure out how we can stop it. That's why. Under these circumstances, even taking a meeting with a foreign national was just so incredibly, incredibly stupid. Does it rise to the level of a crime? Not in the real world. Now, I, I understand there's people out there that, again, you watch that MSNBC, MSNBC bubble and it's, oh, yeah, this, this is it. You know, we're, I, I heard in the New York Times, well, I mean, the, the law says that you have to accept something of value from a Russian government or a foreign national. And nobody suggests that there was anything. I, I don't even know, candidly, if taking the meeting and somebody comes in and says, you know, we have photos showing that Hillary Clinton was drunk at a particular thing or whatever. I don't even know that that would qualify as the income kind contribution, the type of things that should be actionable. But the bottom line is there wasn't anything that was passed. That's why I'm just, for those of you who think that there's going to be indictments coming out of this or or that there will be convictions if there are indictments, I, it, not based on what's out there so far. I'm sorry. This isn't that smoking gun. But at the same time, I agree with Bridget. What are you doing? You know, is you can try to explain this as naivete, I, I guess. But, you know, what are people involved in the campaign, whether it's Donald Trump Jr. or the campaign manager who gets involved in this? What are you doing even going down this particular route? Let's talk to Rick in Mequon. You're in 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hey, Jeff. Hi, Rick. So, um, you know, on a scale of is this, you know, a a big smoking gun? And does it mean anything? To me, it's like a one or two, maybe. Right. In terms of stupidity, He's got to be at least a three, uh, even a four, <laughs> yeah. because it was just stupid. The part that fries me the most is people are so quick to jump on and go, there it is. And you can't have a conversation with them nope. anymore. It's just, see, there it is. And even this morning, someone you know, on the news are saying, well, they said that there was no, nothing of value and the meeting you know, was done. And this person goes, well, that's what they say. Yeah. And it's like, oh, my God. Yeah. So I agree. You know, it was just stupid. And, and he's not a, they're not stupid people. That, that's the part that fries me is these people in the, the, the Trump, and I don't care if it's Trump, Clinton, whoever, they're not stupid people first time around the block. They're very smart. And, it, and just to say, yeah, let's schedule a meeting, it was asinine. Right. Just, he well, couldn't have done anything more, st- and then to not report it oh, yeah. makes it look like he's right. got something to hide. Yeah, and I guess see, and the thing is, okay, when when I ran for office a long time ago, one of the, I mean, there, there's if you look back, first time candidates typically. Uh, at an alarming percentage of first-time candidates end up getting fined for like some typically minor violations of campaign finance laws because they're all very pity and, pe- and petty um, in, in some respects. I mean, I wanted to make sure that didn't happen, so I actually enlisted a really detailed-oriented lawyer friend of mine to take care of all that stuff. If you're running for president... You know, you would think that every damn meeting <laughs> that, you know, your top staff is being vetted by somebody and that the emails you're sending back and forth. I mean, because you got to realize this is all going to be public at some point in time. And it is a little 
maybe not surprising, but frustrating that they apparently just didn't have those filters on it. And you got the you know, Donald Trump Jr. Love it. We can get some dirt on Hillary Clinton without probably even any sort of awareness of, you know, the possible ramifications. But it was just stupid. And, and you can bet that if somebody had gone to the Clinton campaign and said, hey, we got some good dirt on Donald, they'd have been right there going Yahoo. But you would right. hope to think that because of her experience, and her husband's experience, and the people who were with her who have been involved in government for years would have said, no, 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 you don't. just look at that email. Just on the face of it, it looks stupid. It looks like it's a setup. Yeah, of course. I mean, this this is the same Clintons that, you know, you know Bill, <laughs> Bill Clinton sits on the tarmac within the Attorney General, Loretta, Loretta Lynch, you know, when his wife's under investigation, and they sit on the tarmac for, you know, an hour having a private conversation about their quote-unquote grandkids. So, I, I mean, there's a lot of stupidity <laughs> that's just running around all sides. All right, no, thanks, no, no, yeah, thanks. I mean, again, that, that's what's, that is what's kind of frustrating to me, and, and I understand I'm I'm not going to be able to talk some of you out of this is this is a crime. Um, uh, let's see. I have an email here. I think you're letting this off way too easy. The police set up a sting with a 35 year old male with the promise of sex with a 16 year old female. Nothing happens, obviously, because the police are there. Bad optics or more serious. Well, OK. I mean, here's here. Here's the difference. Um Police don't arrest the person unless the person, you know, shows up at the the, the meeting because uh, then he's, you know, indicated that he's going to fulfill the, the conspiracy. Here, there's nothing exchanged, merely taking a meeting. For, first of all, I don't I'm not convinced at all that necessarily even meeting with the foreign national who offers dirt. Um, that that in and of itself is going to be a campaign in kind campaign contribution. That's a big I again, I if if some local candidate you're running for, you know, mayor and somebody calls you up and says, hey, let's have a drink. I've got some information. Did you know the person you're running against was drunk a couple weeks ago? And here are a couple photos. I'm not convinced at all that that is an in-kind contribution that you have an obligation to report. So that's the first issue. Secondly, nothing ended up coming with it. And I understand you've got the, the anti-Trump folks who are looking at this stuff and they're OK, we're, we're, maybe we're going to go for it. I will be stunned. If a prosecutor, based on this, believes that there is evidence of a crime to take to a grand jury, I would be shocked if there were any sort of convictions. I'm just telling you, this is a very, very tenuous sort of thing. Now, if, again, there were dossiers that were turned over, if there was evidence that the Russians, that this woman said, hey, you know, we've been hacking into the Democratic National Committee, and and here's the folders, and here's all this information, well, that's a completely different story, but that's not what what happened here. So again, I, I think it's bad optics. I think people are off message. I think it is incredibly stupid. And one of the hesitations I will tell you I have about the Trump administration is I am concerned about the, the what I describe as the over reliance on family. You know, I, I mean I understand where this is coming from. If you run a closely held family business, okay, dad dad is the CEO you know, dad is leaving a meeting. All right, maybe it's not unusual to have, like, the son or the daughter who are going to sit in. But but this is not a closely held business. When they were at the G2 summit last week and uh, President Trump gets up to leave, normally the Secretary of State takes his spot. Instead, Ivanka does. That bothers me 
because, again, it's this over-reliance on family, and I, I think that's going to cause trouble a, as well. You know, we don't elect families. We elect an individual to be the president, and then we have, you know, people who are appointed. So I, I am troubled. I am troubled by that. Um, that's part of, I think, this broader picture, which is the insular nation, uh, nature of Trump and the over-reliance on families. And maybe there's smoking guns out there. And I understand some of the people who want to bring him down, maybe there's smoking guns that are out there. I'm just saying I don't think that is this is what that is. Sorry to disappoint you, New York Times. It's 948. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. And then one day. It's 9.52, Jeff Wagner, 6.20 WTMJ. That's Roger Waters of Pink Floyd fame. He's coming to the BMO Harris Bradley Center as part of his Us and Them tour. The show is Saturday, July 29th. I have a pair of tickets to give away to that show. Let's give it to caller number 16 at 414-799-1620. Caller 16 wins a pair of tickets to see Roger Waters perform on Saturday, July 29th at the BMO Harris Bradley Center. Caller 16, 414-799-1620. We will have more tickets to give away uh, the balance of this week and all of next week as well, courtesy of our good friends at the BMO Harris Bradley Center and the various promoters. Okay, this is... um, Irony alert. I guess it's irony alert. For the longest time, Waukesha, in order to in order to grow and meet the needs of the community, Waukesha has been trying to make arrangements to bring in water from Lake Michigan. Um, under normal circumstances, um, Waukesha would have been able to do it, except just by virtue of the geography, um, since it is not a community adjacent to Lake Michigan. Waukesha had to get an exception, and this was very, very heated as to whether or not Waukesha would be able to draw water. Ultimately, um, it, it was approved. Now, back when this started, there were three potential places, three communities that could have partnered with Waukesha to get them the, the, um, to get them the water, Racine, Oak Creek, and Milwaukee. Well, Tom Barrett, the mayor, decided that he wanted to try to – he was never really in favor of this because the truth is I, I think he fears competition from Waukesha, and one of the ways he can rein Waukesha – could have reined Waukesha in was by limiting their growth through limiting their access to water. Um, so Barrett and people in Milwaukee said the only way that we're going to let you have Milwaukee water is if – you know, you improve your social services, if you improve your underprivileged housing, if you pr- improve your mass transportation, if you don't any do any of that stuff, we're going to tell you what we want you to do, and if you don't do that, we're not giving you water. So Waukesha essentially said pound sand, and they, they've cut a deal um, with, with Oak Creek. Um, and th- now they've gotten, Waukesha has gotten permission, so they're, they're starting this process. Well, now the city of Milwaukee has apparently had a change of heart, recognizing that they were unable to extort these different requirements from Waukesha. Now they're coming in and saying, hey, last minute, hey, what, what we're going to do is um, we're going to, you know, why, why don't you hire us? We're Now we're going to be friends. Don't all this stuff we talked about before, now that we've lost our efforts to try to limit your ability to get water, well, now we, we want to sell you water. So um, Waukesha and Oak Creek are continuing to negotiate a final contract um, to get to get the 8.2 million gallons a day of lake water um, from Oak Creek. Milwaukee is coming in and saying, oh, let's be friends now. All that stuff, all those roadblocks we put up, all those things we said, don't worry. Now, don't worry. Now let's let's be buds. Okay, well, 
Um, and Waukesha says we're taking a look at it. Here, here is just my my advice on this. Um, if at this point in time, after Milwaukee has done all the things they did to you in an effort to stop you from getting water, if you suddenly decide that now you want to get in bed with Milwaukee for this, well, I, I tell you, my advice would be be sure you tuck your shoulder when you fall off the turnip truck so you don't hurt yourself. You know, Oak Creek negotiated in good faith. They've got this deal. There are certain parameters. Uh, maybe Milwaukee can make a better offer with regard to some things. But the truth of the matter is, at this point in time, given the way Milwaukee behaved over the last several years with Waukesha's attempts to get water, given that Milwaukee has essentially failed to stop Waukesha from getting water under at least the terms that Milwaukee dictated, to now say, okay, we're going to negotiate a deal for with Milwaukee would be the height of folly, and my prediction would be moving forward, nothing good comes of this. Tom Barrett had a chance to do the right thing years ago and decided, again, to use the leverage he thought he had. Now that that leverage is gone, I think it would be well advised for Waukesha to continue its negotiations with Oak Creek, um, or Racine, but primarily Oak Creek. I think the deal is with Oak Creek, and just kind of move on, get your water, and go from there. What they're going to decide to do, I don't know, but I think this late effort to try to now cut a deal, hey, let's be friends, I'd encourage him to stay away from that. Okay, coming up, um, some bad news for the victims of that of that uh, concrete panel falling um, down in O'Donnell Park. Um, I've got the 68-page decision from the Court of Appeals. We will discuss that. No solitary confinement for teenagers. Hmm. Madison Mall's closing for teenagers and lots more. Stick around. It's 957. We do have a winner for our tickets. Rob from Oshkosh wins the Robert Roger Waters tickets for today. We'll have more to give away as the week rolls on. It's 957. It's 10.09. Jeff Wagner, so very glad to have you with us. All right, here's the upshot of, of this story. It, uh, last Thursday, I went down with some friends of mine to Summerfest, Thursday afternoon. It was the day it was really hot. It was like 90 degrees and whatever. We, we still had a good time for a couple hours in the afternoon. But to get down to Summerfest, we drove down Lake Drive and Lincoln Memorial Drive and went past O'Donnell Park. And, and I swear, I cannot... I cannot drive past O'Donnell Park on Lincoln Memorial Drive and right across from where the, the art museum is, you, you have that, that entrance slash exit where you had the large decorative concrete panel, the 13-ton decorative panel that fell off. That was 2010. Remember, that was opening day of Summerfest 2010. It fell and it killed a 15-year-old young man and injured two other people. I, again, whenever I... I always think back to that, and whenever I drive by there, I just look at that building, and I think just how how absolutely freaky that the whole thing is that you have this concrete panel that was it shouldn't have it was improperly placed there in the first place, and there's all sorts of negligence. But the idea that it gives way at just that particular moment when those people are walking through—I mean, because I, I will tell you, if it's some sometime other than Summerfest. 
or one of the lakefront act other ethnic festivals or something, you know, chances are that gives way, it falls, and you know nobody's going to be injured. But just th- this one particular time, you had these people under there. Uh, just just a horrible story, and it's kind of haunting every time you drive by it. Well, there was a, of course, there was a lengthy trial, and after a six-week jury trial. Um, the, the jury found that you know one of the companies that had designed and installed the the panel, Advanced Cast Stone, was you know liable for this, and so there were some big time awards that came out. Matter of fact, um, the the judge Christopher Foley ended up finding you know punitive damage awards in the amount of thirty nine thousand dollars, and that's just not as we talk about a lot. That's not just the 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 pain and suffering. Awards, you know, pain and suffering are, you know, what occurs when you, you know, what what's the injury that you sustain? Six point three million in that, but also thirty nine million dollars in punitive damages. Punitive damages being designed to punish the company for what they did. Well, yesterday, the Court of Appeals, in a decision that some people aren't going to like, but at least in my opinion, it's right, and it will be upheld on appeal. What they did is they, they upheld the verdicts and they upheld the, the judgment and all that. But what they said was the insurance company that represented or the insurance company that had provided coverage for this advanced cast stone, the people that made and installed the concrete panel, that their liability was only $10 million. That only, he says, Jeff says only $10 million. But that, that's what the policy limits were. The policy limits were $10 million. The circuit judge had found that the insurance company breached its duty to defend the insured, in this case the, um, the, the, stone, the, the stone company, the um, advanced cast stone, and because they breached their duty to defend them, the insurance carrier would be on the hook for all $39 million. That was always, I think a lot of us viewed that as a huge stretch, and what the Court of Appeals yesterday said, we're going to allow the verdicts to stand, including the $39 million, perhaps, but the, the there's no – we disagree with the idea that the insurance company breached its duty to defend. Why is this important? Because it potentially limits the ability to recover significantly. I mean, here, here's one of the things that you learn early on in, in law school, that – what you need, you, you can sue anybody for anything, and you can get judgments against anybody. But if people don't have the ability to pay, well, okay, go, go paper your, your wall with the verdict. I mean, the verdict, right? Let's say you're the victim of an automobile accident in, in an automobile collision, and somebody else is completely at fault. What you end up doing is you sue, and you get a judgment. Now, maybe you get a $2 million award, but the person doesn't have any insurance, or the person doesn't have any money, or the policy limits of the insurance are you know fifty thousand dollars or a hundred thousand dollars or whatever that that's fine. The insurance company pays out. They say, okay, we we're, we're on the hook for a hundred thousand dollars. You still have a verdict. Okay, well, I got a million dollar verdict. Well, okay, good luck trying to collect that other nine hundred thousand dollars. So in this particular case, the court of appeals, long story short, without going into details, ended up ruling that yeah, these verdicts can stand they send it back to the court of appeals for for the to the district court for the circuit court for some more different rulings but but in general all right the, the verdict is there 
but the insurance company is on the hook for $10 million, not $39 million. Now, this, again, it's significant because there's now going to be a temptation for the insurance company just to say, all right, our, our liability is policy limits, it's $10 million, which then means that the people, you know, the victims in this case, who have this judgment for $39 million, they got to try to collect. And if there's not insurance that's there, if there's not an insurance company providing the deep pockets, well, then how much money you can get? What happens if the company declares bankruptcy? You know, yes, you can follow them and try to get some assets, but the ability to collect on the judgment is dramatic, and that's why that's the important to me part of this ruling. It's from a collection perspective. If the insurance company is only liable, and again, I understand $10 million is a lot of money, but if the insurance company is only liable for $10 million, and candidly, I think the Court of Appeals got it right, might not be a result that people like, but it, I think they got it right. I think the circuit judge was wrong in some of his rulings, and that's what the Court of Appeals said as well. If that if that stands, the insurance company writes a check for $10 million, the family, the victims, they've got a judgment for $39 million, but how do you collect? You know, how do you, what do you do if the company just declares bankruptcy? Um, how, how many assets are there? Potentially a big deal as far as recovery. The families are closer, closer to getting some judgments, but at the same time, um, at the same time, if, if you can't depend on the insurance to pay the full amount, you know, how collectible does it become? So that that's the big development. I can't believe it's been 2010, though. I mean, here, this has been going on for, for seven years. And I will tell you, after the Court of Appeals decision yesterday, my my guess is this is going to be continued to be tied up in litigation for the next three or four years. And what do we always say about justice delayed being justice denied? Just saying. It's 1016. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 1018, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us this morning. Looks like, um, at least for most of our listing area, the rain is kind of moving out. Um, and even, even in the southern portion of the listing area that's just been whomped. That's a technical term. Whomped with rain over the course of the last couple of days. Looks like you're finally starting to even see the back edge of some of that, but still got a little bit of time to work through here. Um, the Wednesday after baseball's All-Star Game tends to be one of the slowest sports days of the year. So what's the opposite end of that spectrum? What's the best single day on your sports calendar? Huh. What's the best single day on your sports calendar? Greg Matzik shares his selections and takes yours as well. That is tonight. Tune in, Sports Central, 735. All right, there is, um, there, there's nothing that kills a business more than a belief that it is unsafe. You know, we, we've talked about over the years many, many times about the, the Northridge Shopping Center. And, I mean, as I when I was a kid, and if you if you've moved here in the last ten or fifteen years, I, I understand you don't you don't get what is this Northridge thing that people speak of. But I mean, if you can picture Southridge back in the seventies and eighties, Northridge Shopping Center was the equivalent of Southridge. And if you grew up on the North Shore, you went to you hung out at Northridge. And I can remember spending you know many many weekends in my misbegotten boyhood. You know, you go to the movie theaters; they had restaurants. It it was thriving. And what happened is a variety of things. But in general, the perception, and to an extent the reality, became that Northridge was increasingly unsafe. And suburban shoppers, particularly like a lot of the suburban shoppers, the women from Mequon, um, decided that, that they just didn't want to go there. 
because they were afraid that their things were unsafe. So people stopped coming. The result was people stopped coming, stores start closing, and you, you get into this, this vicious cycle that's there. Then once the stores stop start closing, you know, people say, well, there's nothing out there that I want to shop at anyways. So you get this vicious cycle, and, and it ends up closing. That's why it is so important for retail operations to provide a, a safe environment. I have been told that there is at least one shopping center in southeastern Wisconsin, for example, that discourages their merchants from calling authorities about shoplifting because they don't want to give the impression that there's a lot of crime going on at the particular you know, retail establishment or the shopping center. And so they don't want to have people call because if people read the reports and say hey, there's a lot of shoplifting there, then they'll they'll be concerned that it's unsafe and they won't show up. And so the idea is the operators encourage merchants not to report these things because you don't want to make the shopping center look bad. Now you can argue whether or not that's deceiving the public. I'm just saying I'm told that goes on at least one. But you have to you have to try to provide a safe environment. Now, one of the things that makes shoppers uncomfortable is large groups of unescorted and unsupervised teenagers running through various places. Um, that's a concern that, for example, um, a number of the malls in southeastern Wisconsin, as a result of this, on weekends, they've adopted curfews. And they've just kind of made the decision that, hey, we don't want the malls to be a place for 16-year-olds to hang out. Um, on on weekends, for example, because especially after certain times, because we believe that it, it creates it just creates problems. And the last thing we want is to have I don't know people are coming out who are shopping or going to some of the restaurants. You know, see a group of thirty or forty or fifty kids just kind of all congregating that they have to walk through. Now, this is a long way of introducing this topic because Madison's two biggest shopping malls are apparently considering. Um, adopting curfews, you know, under the, the proposed curfew, anybody under the age of 18, so, you know, under the age of 18, would be prohibited from being in the malls without, and this would apply to the West Town Mall and the East Town Mall, the policy would say anybody under 18 would be prohibited from being um, allowed to be in the mall without a parent or a guardian on Friday or Saturday evenings um, after 4 p.m. So that's it. It's like, okay, the people under the age of 18, if you're going to be in the malls after 4 p.m., you need to have a parent or a guardian with you. Now, this is clearly an effort to, uh, again, try to provide a, a better shopping experience, a more safe experience, a more pleasant experience for the adults that they hope to attract to the various malls. Now, as you might expect, some people, particularly since this is Madison, are wondering about, you know, is what about this? Is this racist? Is this, is this designed to keep, you know, kids of color out of the malls, even though it applies to everyone? Um, is it too extreme? Is this unfair to the kids? Let's tee this up. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I will tell you this. Fair or unfair, I think some of the policies that some of our area malls here have established saying no unescorted young people in the malls 
after a certain time, whether it's 4 o'clock or 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock, whatever, I think those policies have helped sustain some of the malls. And this idea that it's like 8.30 or 9 o'clock at night and you've got a large group of 15-year-olds, you know, wandering through the malls. I, I understand why mall operators don't want that to happen. 414-799-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, retail shopping establishments are, are, are struggling to begin with. Malls are, in general, struggling to begin with. I don't have a problem with these curfews saying, look, you know, we just don't want large groups of kids hanging out in the malls at 7 or 8 o'clock at night. I think these policies are perfectly reasonable, and I think they're going to help sustain the malls. Okay, what do you think? We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. 414-799-1620 is the number. It's 1025. 1027, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Joe in Appleton. Joe, good morning. Good morning. Okay, so what do you think? Madison's considering a, a curfew on some, in some of the biggest malls, unaccompanied kids not allowed in the malls after 4 or 5 o'clock on weekends. Good idea, bad idea? I think it's a great idea. You know, I don't want to see a south, south or west town or east town turn into another Northridge. And, you know, regardless of the race of these kids, the, the reality of it is, is that these are the hooligans that are creating the issues of the perception. And the malls wouldn't be proposing these these types of situations if there wasn't that fear from their constituents. So, yeah, I'm all in favor of it. Yeah, I mean, again, it, it's it's just, it, it's kind of a preemptive thing, and I, I understand if I were a 16-year-old kid, I would think it was somewhat unfair, but from the perspective of the people that they are trying to attract to the malls, the, the last thing you want is that that husband and wife who's considered going out to, to have something neat at the mall or doing some Saturday night shopping saying, hey, I don't want to have to walk through you know 40 or 50 teenagers who are essentially not spending money, who are loitering there. That That's that's not the clientele that you want. And so they're, they're not saying the kids can't come in. They're just saying, hey, you have to have you know a parent or guardian or somebody over 21 with you if you're going to be there. And you hit it on the head. The, the purpose of a mall is to have retail outlets be able to make a profit and right. you know have customers. These guys are not spending money. There's no reason they need to be there. Yeah, and no, thanks. I mean, again, it's look, it's it's a hangout spot. I mean, and and yeah, I mean, I understand maybe they're buying a soda or something, or but 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 it's it's a spot to hang out. I know. I used to hang out at Northridge Mall when I was 16 years old. That's. That's the thing. And you can make an argument that the kids need some place to go. I appreciate that. But at the same time, you also have to balance that with the commercial interests of some of these mall operators who are trying to say, okay, the last thing we want is to get this reputation that you come out and there's going to be, oh, this large group of of, of teenagers, unaccompanied teenagers, hanging out and kind of taking over the place. Kevin in Milwaukee. Kevin, good morning. You're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning, Jeff. This is one certainly that you know. I, I think I struggled with as a as a student age individual, and I struggle with now as an adult. It, it always felt a little discriminatory to me to walk up to a convenience store and see a sign that said no more than three students allowed oh, at once. Yeah, I mean, we both know there was a sign that said you know no Muslims after four o'clock in a mall or no Christians, no white males would never fly, and so I really struggled getting my arms around. I understand that. You know, the previous callers used the word hooligans. These are the folks causing the trouble, but they're also taking a small subset of the population, applying it to the rest of us as a whole who are at that age, 
And that just doesn't fly with other protected classes. I struggle with it applying. Yeah, except teenagers aren't teenagers aren't a protected class. (laughs) So that's age in general. Right. Yeah. I mean, I but I mean, I mean, thanks to call. I mean, I mean, from a legal perspective, I mean, we we say that you have to be 16 years old to drive. I mean, for from a legal perspective, you you do have age discrimination laws, but they apply to people that that's tip that's the upper end that they okay can't discriminate to somebody over the age of 50 or whatever. I, I don't know that. A 16-year-old is not a member of a protected class, so I don't. I don't think there's a legal problem with doing this. The question becomes more: is it is it the right thing to do? And I mean, candidly, I mean, I understand those concerns, and I understand it's unfair to some extent. And if I was a 16-year-old kid, I wouldn't like it. But you know, if the mall thinks they need to do it, I say do it. And by the way, the curfews that they have put in place at some of the Milwaukee area malls, I think that you tell. I, I think they would tell you it works. I think it would tell you it works, and their idea is, look, if you want to come out to the mall during the day, that's fine, but once you know the evening rolls around, you know we don't want you here if you're 15 years old unless you're here with a parent or a guardian. It's 1036, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. The Brewers are in first place at the All-Star break. How cool is that? That, that is 50 wins. That is just absolutely amazing. How cool is that? Matt Pauley looks back at the first half of the season and how the crew got to this surprising midway point. It's all in the latest Brewers Extra Innings podcast, up now at WTMJ.com and the WTMJ mobile app. Okay, now see, I, I'm, I'm into my like fan shaming right now because I have, I have Colleen Boland. I, I'm here to tell you, I've been arguing for the longest time that Milwaukee, southeastern Wisconsin, and the state of Wisconsin is a, is a great place for sports. We are outstanding sports fans. We support our teams, right? Yes, we do. Okay. We right. love them. Okay, a- absolutely. All right, so that is why it is so frustrating to me that the Brewers, who are having a magical sort of season. Now, look, I, I, I don't know. They've still got 70-plus games to go. I understand a lot can happen. But this first half of the season, given what the expectations of this team were, the first half of the season has been nothing short of magical. It's just, and you, you get the idea that something special is going on here. It's, they're, they're playing, they've had some tough losses, but they've come back from them. They're five and a half games in first place in their, their division against the, and they're, they're competing, the world champion Chicago Cubs. People thought the Cubs were going to be a dynasty, and maybe they'll still turn out to be, but um, not the way they've been playing so far. And the St. Louis Cardinals and all, the Brewers were just an afterthought. They were an afterthought, and they're in first place by five and a half games. Well, here is my frustration. If you look at attendance from this season to last season, the Brewers have drawn total 30,000 fewer people this year than last year. At the same time, that's just crazy. Now, I understand what happens is a lot of times people people buy tickets in advance, and, and you buy tickets for one season based on the previous season. You know, So you have the advanced season ticket sales. So obviously, maybe expectations were low, and people just didn't get the word out. But I'm telling you, this team is for real, and there's absolutely no reason why people should not be packing Miller Park. Got a big series against the Phillies coming up um, when they start after the All-Star break on Friday, and then they go on the road for 10 days. So if you want to see the Brewers, you want to be out there for the next three games, These this weekend, these weekend series, this should be sold out. It should just flat out be sold out. They should have at least 40,000 people there every night. This is part of, I think, their 1982 you know, championship 
um, you know, 35 years for that team. There is just no re- There's lots of great giveaways. There, there is no reason. There is no reason that Miller Park should not be full Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So it's time for Brewers fans to kind of get off their backsides and get out and support this team. All right. If you are a regular listener of this program, you know that I am a um, I have been a critic of Ed Flynn. I think Ed Flynn has lost his mind. Let me just let me just say that I, I don't I don't know any other. I think he's lost his mind um, on a lot of different things. I, I think rather than rather than do law enforcement, I think he's become political, way too political. I think he say he says things that I think are designed to curry favor with. You know, wh- whichever way he perceives the political winds to blow. I mean, the, the the classic example of that is is what a week and a half ago he comes out with the the stunningly stupid statement, and there's just no other way to describe it, where he blames in part Milwaukee's out of control gun violence on concealed carry permit holders. I mean, that, that was just, you know, and, and I understand he, he's in this group. There's these people who don't like concealed carry. He doesn't like concealed carry. So he says, okay, this is it's irresponsible politicians who've done this policy, and, and this is it. Well, okay, you know, let's face it. Th- th- this idea that whatever is causing gun violence in the city of Milwaukee, and there's a myriad of factors, concealed carry, I mean, really? And then when he's challenged on it, well, chief, Okay, show me some evidence. Show me the numbers. Name the names. You know, how many people involved with concealed carry permits have either committed these crimes or have acted like as as the beard, have picked up the gun, they've got the concealed carry permit, they're walking around with a concealed gun, and they're giving it to the gangbanger who then shoots things up. And and then Flynn, of course, takes the position, well, I'm not legally allowed to disclose that. Well... First of all, that's ridiculous because if the people were charged and were concealed carry permit holders, it would it would become public. But it's just not happening. Ed Flynn knows it's not happening, but he says these stupid things to try to deflect responsibility and curry favor. So, I mean, I think you can make a strong argument that Ed Flynn, and this happens to lots of urban police chiefs, that, that it's time for him to go, that, that he's worn out his, his welcome that a lot of the policies that he's implemented, he's just kind of run out of ideas. And that, that happens to urban police chiefs. There is a burnout factor. All right. Having said that, though, the question becomes, who is it that should make that decision? Journal Sentinel reporting that a, a group of Milwaukee aldermen, members of the Common Council, including a handful of the conservative members and some of the most liberal members, are getting together and they are proposing that they would, Lord help us, like to have the um, Milwaukee Common Council that have the would have the power to fire the police chief. Now, the way it works under state law is it's the Fire and Police Commission that is essentially controlled by the mayor. The mayor, with common council approval, is the one who appoints the people to the common council. Um, But the the common council, the the Fire and Police Commission, pretty much does what the mayor wants them to do. But that's it. But they're the ones under state law who have the power to decide whether the police chief stays or goes. I mean, they're the ones that make the hiring decisions. So you have a number of members of the common council, or at least five so far, who are saying, we would like to change that. We would like to make it us that decides whether or not the police chief stays or the police chief goes. And if they were to pass a, a law like that, 
then, I mean, the mayor has already said, I'm not signing off on this. Um, but if they were to override the mayor's veto, then you would also need to have a change of state laws. So there's a lot of steps. But the members of the Common Council, and again, it's some of the most conservative ones, and it's some of the liberal ones who are bent out of shape over the fact that the police, when they steal, when they seize money from drug dealers, they take it and they use it on uh, law enforcement purposes. Some members of the Common Council, for reasons that pass understanding, believe that that's a, a bad thing. But anyhow, they want the Common Council members want the power to fire the police chief if they believe that he has lost or she has lost touch with the community. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think you can make a strong argument that it is time for new leadership of the Milwaukee Police Department. I think you can make that strong argument. You can make a strong argument that it is time for Ed Flynn to go. But, 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 do we really want the Clown Car Act that is the Milwaukee Common Council to be the ones that are making that decision? Would it be a good idea to let the Common Council fire the police chief for more reasons than i can think of i would say no what do you think 414-799-1620 that is the accident mortgage talk and text line we will be back with your calls in just a minute it's ten forty-four. it's ten forty-nine. jeff wagner 620 wtmj we'll continue to keep you updated with with the weather earlier and the flooding, it's been a mess on the roadways. Now there is an accident, a collision, I-94 eastbound. That's the freeway, closed in Delafield. So it, it's a mess, just an absolute mess. So if you're coming in from the west and you're west of Delafield and you want to get into Milwaukee or to Waukesha or whatever, find yourself an alternative route because the freeway right now is is closed and we'll continue to keep you updated on developments. Okay, I, I look, I, I've come to the conclusion that it's time for Ed Flynn to go. I, I, I believe that. Um, but, but this idea that a police chief could be fired by the Milwaukee Common Council. I think that would be a horrible idea. If you believe a police chief like I do, Ed Flynn, is too political now in his efforts to curry favor with the mayor, can you imagine if you had a police chief who owed his job to a majority of members of the Common Council that have all their different political interests? My God. John and Racine, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Jeff? Hi, John. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. I couldn't resist calling on that one. It's a horrible idea for the Milwaukee Common Council to have control over whether the police chief stays or goes. The whole purpose of a fire and police commission is to take the politics out of the selection of officers, police officers, and particularly police chiefs. Um. I know in, in, in Milwaukee, it, it appears that, you know, Ed Flynn is, is beholden to the mayor. I don't know that that's the case. But as you have said, putting it in the hands of the Milwaukee Common Council, those guys can't, can't agree on what time of day it is. Well, and I'm just trying to imagine a situation where let, let's say that there's, he decides he wants to aggressively 
target a particular high crime area. We're going to have saturation patrols or whatever. And you have some people in the neighborhood who complain about it. You get a majority of the common council. What is it? Like six plus. You get seven members of the common council whose constituents start to complain. They say, you know, Ed Flynn, we we want you to stop this or we're going to end up firing you. I mean, the last thing I want is, is the common council dictating police um, activities based on their own political views. It would be disastrous for the city. It would be. It no. would be. No, thanks to call. I appreciate it. Now, look, I, I understand that the Common Council does play an indirect role in trying to, you know, influence the police. They have, they have the power of the purse. There is control over the budget or things like that. If if you think Ed Flynn is doing, you know, if, or any police chief, and I don't mean to, I don't mean to specify this with Flynn. If you think that, you know, Ed Flynn is being non-responsive. If you think that Ed Flynn, you know, isn't committing enough resources to this or that or the other thing, you you can always, you know, monkey around with the the budget. You can decide if the force, if there's too many police officers on the force, you can take dollars away. But but the idea that you know, people, uh, elected officials in this capacity, each with their own political, you know, bone to pick, are going to be the ones that are going to be directing police policy. And, boy, you know, Flynn's alien. And, and you, you can actually kind of see this in the groups that are emerging. That this, the liberal members of the Common Council, or at least a couple of liberal members, they're upset because Flynn asset forfeiture laws allow you to seize seize st- illegally gained stuff. So for example, drug money. You bust the drug deal, drug dealer's got $25,000 on him. You can seize that money. You don't, you don't give the drug dealer back his $25,000. And the law allows you to seize it and forfeit it and use it for law enforcement purposes. You can put that money into buying protective vests for the cops or you know buying new surveillance video, what, whatever. I mean, there, and there's a procedure, and the Fire and Police Commission approves how it is. You've got a handful of these loony common, members of the Common Council who apparently don't like these asset forfeiture laws. Well, if you take the money from drug dealers, why should you use it to buy bulletproof vests for the police officers you know that 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 type of stuff you know maybe, maybe you should just get rid of it huh no you get what do you mean get rid of it i mean use it i mean use it if it uses it to save the lives of police officers i'm i'm 100 behind it but you've got you know some of those people that are going to be doing that trying to influence police policy by threatening the guy's job that's why the system is set up like it is the fire and police commission admittedly beholden to the mayor no question about it but uh, again you know, the, the mayor runs for re-election every four years, and if you have a situation where crime is out of control in a city, all right, the mayor's the one. Mayor is ultimately accountable for that. If people decide we've had enough and that's enough, you can end up voting out the mayor. But um, in this particular situation, um, this particular situation, Tom Barrett, this is the second time I've said this in, in a week, is, is absolutely right. You know, Barrett says, look, I'm not going to sign off on this. The, I, you know, we don't, what was his exact statement on this? I oppose any effort to dilute and undermine the statutory authority of the Citizen Member Fire and Police Commission. The commission is a national model. Politicizing the operations of the fire and police departments is horrible public policy and would run contrary to the principles of citizen oversight and engagement. Now, that's a little bit naive because, like I say, the fire and police commission is beholden to the mayor. And so, you know, in this case, you've got them trying to curry favor or do what the mayor wants as opposed to doing what the common council wants. But, my gosh, turning control of the police department um, through the ability to hire and fire over to the Milwaukee Common Council, if that ever happens, 
I mean, seriously, will the last person to leave the city who's not a criminal please turn off the lights? It's 10.58, Jeff Wagner, 6.20, WTMJ. Quick reminder, we'll have a traffic update in just a couple minutes. The uh, freeway, I-94 eastbound, is is completely closed in Delafield. There is a major major accident, and uh, we'll have an update. But again, if you're at least for the moment, um, if you're traveling eastbound and you want to get to uh, Milwaukee or Brookfield, you want to take a different route because the freeway is completely and totally closed. All right, the um, got a lot of stuff coming up in the next hour. Um, Game of Thrones, it, it, it's coming back this weekend. So, season seven of Game of Thrones, everybody's talking about this. What happens? If you haven't seen seasons one, two, three, four, five, or six of the Game of Thrones, do you wade in? All right. Hondo says you wade in. You, you, okay, so your theory is you cannot watch Game of Thrones season seven unless you've watched all six, six seasons beforehand. Yeah, well, he says you'd recommend it. But, but, but for people who have a life, how are you going to be able to – where are you going to come up with that 60 hours? We're going to be talking about that. Um, in addition, the History Channel – Airs a show that doesn't turn out to have any relationship at all to history and a lot more. Stick around. It's 1059. This is Jeff Wagner. WTMJ, we will continue to keep you posted of this um, absolute mess on the freeway. Like I say, the freeway I-94 eastbound in Delafield, it's closed. And when I say closed, I mean it's closed. It's not going anywhere right now. Um, Multiple car accidents, uh, lots of stuff going on. So if you're trying to head eastbound to get to downtown Milwaukee or to Brookfield or anywhere essentially east of where this closure is occurring in Delafield, um, find an alternative route. Lots of people stuck in there right now. I'm... uh, it, it's amazing to me that people believe people believe what they want to believe, and it's always been amazing to me that people get some of these theories in their mind and they just won't let them go. Um, one of the things is, I, I, and I saw the promos for this this particular show, um, the History Channel. I like the History Channel. Um, that it, it some, sometimes I think they're over, they're obsessed on war, and then sometimes they're obsessed with like silly stuff. But I generally speak, I, I like the History Channel. The History Channel was running this promo for a, a documentary, an exclusive expose that they were going to do um, last week, and it involved Amelia Earhart. Um, Amelia Earhart was, of course, a very famous female aviator who um, disappeared. She was trying to you know, fly around the world, circumnavigate the globe, and she, she disappeared in 1937. And they, they never found Amelia Earhart. They never found the plane, but it, it went down somewhere over the ocean. And so the, you know, I mean, the official the thing, it's just, okay, this was a plane crash. She died in the plane crash. They never found it. There have been a handful of conspiracy theorists out there who've been arguing, no, Amelia Earhart actually survived that crash. So then the question, it's sort of like the people who, you know, believe that Elvis didn't die or that Jim Morrison didn't die. No, Amelia Earhart survived the crash. And one of the theories that has been out there is that um, she survived the crash. 
she was taken prisoner by the Japanese. This is before you know World War II, and she was held in a Japanese uh, prisoner of war camp, and she ultimately died. That that's been what the theory that's been out there. And despite the fact that there's really no hard evidence that supports that, people have been just gravitating around it. So the way this History Channel doc, quote-unquote documentary, sort of like the uh, Making a Murder documentary, the way it was billed is new definitive evidence showing that Amelia Earhart survived that this crash. And the definitive evidence was that this photograph, and they say, okay, and you can see in this photo, it's kind of this grainy photograph that was taken in 1937, but after, this is what it's. This is the way it was presented. Here's a photograph that was post. It was 1937, but post Amelia Earhart's disappearance. And if you look at it, you can see a woman who's standing here, and that's the that's the that's Amelia Earhart, and then her uh, navigator is, is with her. And this is evidence that she in fact survived the the um, survived the crash. And this photograph supposedly came from Jap- Japanese historical um, records. So here's definitive evidence she survived. Well, I-, I remember thinking, hmm, that's kind of an interesting theory, and that would be something really new if, if it existed. And then um, after the-, the program airs, and the History Channel runs this thing, after the program airs, what happens is pretty immediately there's people who, you know, are very, very familiar with you know, Japanese military history and World War II and things of the like, and they say, well, okay, here's the problem. That, that photograph that you say is from you know, after the Amelia Earhart crash in 1937, well, well actually, um, it was first published in 1935 in a Japanese travel log. <laughs> um, so it, it couldn't have depicted you know, Earhart and her navigator, but um, because it, it occurred two years before she supposedly set off on, on the trip. So that, that's not her. This was around several years earlier. It, it's not this definitive thing. And so, I mean, the History Channel, which then becomes the question, why are you running a documentary that says, hey, we've got this new, you know, we, we've solved this thing, when it's not true? Um, apparently, the History Channel, now taking a lot of heat over this, they issued a statement yesterday saying, um, we've got a team of investigators exploring the latest developments about Amelia Earhart, and we will be transparent in our findings. Ultimately, historical accuracy is more important to us and our viewers. Um, so they acknowledge that they ran this documentary, you know, and created this stir, if you care about this particular issue. But again, they, they did this based on um, stuff that, I mean, pretty clearly could have been proven to be false. I, I bring this up because... We, we live in this era of fake news, and I understand the History Channel isn't like ABC, CBS, or NBC. But the truth of the matter is that we need to be very, very skeptical as consumers because things that are presented as fact oftentimes aren't fact a- at all. And in this particular situation, you know, what you really have is some crackpot theory that's out there. They presented in a compelling fashion in a documentary. It's presented as the truth, and it's really it's not. And you can see the way public opinion can be shaped. I think the same thing is true, candidly, in the Stephen Avery case, making a murderer, where you have documentary, quote unquote, documentary filmmakers who have a certain agenda 
They take a particular position. They shade the evidence to convince people what their position is, and then they, they present it, and then people just believe it. Kind of frustrating. All right, can you come in in the middle? Stick around. We'll discuss next. It's 11.15. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 1118, Jeff Wagner, 620, WTMJ. Matter of fact, one of our listeners just texted us, texted us a photo of Flight for Life on the scene. So um, as Colleen says, shut down not just for five or ten minutes, but for a couple hours. So um, avoid uh, avoid this. Apparently it's a very significant problem. Uh, Roger Waters brings his us and them tour to the BMO Harris Bradley Center on Saturday, July 29th. We're going to be giving you a chance to win a pair of tickets all this week and all next week. Be listening to this here show, my program, between 8.30 and noon. We've given the tickets away for today, but more tomorrow, more Thursday, more Friday, and more all next week. And you could be enjoying the music of Roger Waters featuring songs from Pink Floyd right here on 620 WTMJ. All right. This weekend, Game of Game of Thrones, the hit HBO series, returns for season number seven. My understanding is they're going to make 12 or 13 more episodes, and then that's it, um, which is interesting because the, the book, you know, it's been years. It, it takes the author years to write the books. Now I think they're past where the books are, um, but... So who knows how it's going to end. But they're going to stretch it out over uh, two different seasons, but there'll be two kind of like mini seasons. So Game of Thrones Season 7. I, um, I, I admit, I, I've never, I've only seen a couple of episodes of Game of Thrones, and that is because I intend to read the books. And I, I, read, I read the first book. And I haven't had a chance to read any of the other ones, but there's, I've got them. They're, they're sitting there, and and that is that is one of my things. You know, I, I intend to read them, but I I don't I don't want to watch since I intend to read the books. I don't want to watch the shows beforehand because that's going to affect how I, I view things. But but here's the deal: it, it everybody talks about the Game of Thrones. So I mean, I've made a conscious decision that I'm avoiding the, the TV show because I want to read the books. But there's a lot of good TV out there, which is, which is again, it, I, I would describe it as opposed to like episodic, which is okay. You know, you you can turn on the Andy Griffith show, and you know, it really the seasons vary, but you know, each show is kind of like a, a standalone show. Whereas there's a lot of good TV out there, which is more I describe it kind of as more of, a, of an anthology type of thing. You know, it, it's. It's one show after another, and they build on it. And whether it's The Wire on HBO or whether it's The Sopranos or whether it's Breaking Bad or whatever, the characters develop over a series of years. And what happens is a lot of times when they, they go into these things, they say, okay, this is going to be a series. We're going we're gonna to hopefully run this for three or four years, and we're going to tell our story. Well, what happens, a lot of times people don't find out about the show until the first or the, the second or the third or the fourth season, and then you're way behind. So the issue becomes, all right, gee, you know, I've heard all sorts of great things about Baking, Breaking Bad or Game of Thrones or whatever. Um, do, you, do you say, you know, I, I, I want to know what's going on here, uh, but do you go back and do you binge watch? Do you say, okay, I'm going to start at the beginning, and before I watch season seven, I'm going to watch seasons one through six. Or can you just pick it up in the middle? One of the things they find from a ratings perspective is a lot of times, you know, after the first year or two, that the ratings are as high as they are going to be because 
people aren't willing to make the commitment to come in. They don't want to come in the middle, and they weren't, aren't willing to make the commitment to go back and let's watch a year or two. Breaking Bad was the exception, and there have been a couple others. So you've got Game of Thrones. Now, again, for me, I'm not going to be jumping in because I don't want to watch the shows till I've read the books. So at some point in time, I'm sure I will after I've read the books once I, re- once I get around to doing it. But assuming you're not obsessed like me about that, and you haven't watched a show like Game of Thrones – Everybody is talking about it. Can you watch, can you pick up a show like that in the middle? Can you start watching Game of Thrones right now, season seven, if you haven't watched more than one or two episodes of the first six seasons? Do you have to be a completist? Can you be a completist? 414-799-1620. Let's start with uh, Lucas in South Milwaukee. Lucas, good morning. Hey, so I am with someone who came in on Game of Thrones probably around... Season three or four, I caught up to that. Right. Um, and I'm somebody who likes this genre, you know, the medieval S stuff. Um, somebody usually picks up on it. And it took me about a season and a half right, just to get down names <laughs> right. and families and stuff like that. Right. Who's related all to who and why somebody's stuff. killing somebody else so and all that I stuff. Think yeah. It's so hard to come in on seven and then try to grasp all that and what's happened and right. then to feel current. I don't think it's one of those shows that really gives you that luxury. Right. So your your advice would be, if you haven't watched the first six seasons, don't try to pick it up at the end because you're going to be just completely lost. Yeah, I, I mean, if, if you're wanting to, you know, you want, obviously people want to be part of what's being talked about. Right. But I feel like it, even if you watch the season along with everyone else, you're not you're still not going to be because you're still so far behind on what's happened. Right. And and you need and what you're saying is you think you need that kind of institutional knowledge. You you need to know what happened in season 3 to make sense of what's happening in season 7. To fully appreciate and understand, yeah. Got it. Okay, thanks for the call. Appreciate. 4147991616. See, now there's some shows. I'm trying to think of a show. I I was a big fan of Justified. It went off the air last year after like 5 or 6 years. Um and and what justified would do is they would they would have story arcs they would tell essentially a different story every year using the same characters and building on the characters and for justified i, I thought and i watched it from the beginning but each each season was separate it it helped it helped if you said watch season one or two because you kind of understand who a couple of the recurring characters were but i thought that was a show where it was possible to come in for example, in season three, and not be completely and totally lost. And, and see, and that's what happened with Breaking Bad. People started hearing word of mouth. They started watching a little bit of it, and then they went back and they wanted to catch up. But, I mean, Justified was a show that I thought you could come in in the middle. The Wire on HBO, another one um, that, you know, if you picked it up. I mean, I actually I picked up The Wire in the second year. It was a five-year run. And I, then after I watched the second year, I went back and watched the first. 414-799-1620. Let's, uh, let's talk to Matt in Kenosha. Matt, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, sure. Can you, can, you, can you go into a show like Game of Thrones in Season 7 if you haven't seen Season 1 through 6? Uh, yes and no. It's kind of a double-edged sword. You're, you're doing yourself a disservice if you don't watch the full seasons. Although, if you do watch the first episode and the last episode, I'm not going to say there's a whole lot of filler in between. There is some really good stuff. Um, there's a lot of meat on the bones in between. But if you wanted to just jump right into the current upcoming season, if you watch the first episode and the last episode, you'll at least have an idea of what's going on. Yeah. 
Right. So so do a little bit of background before you get into it, huh? Yeah. If you just jump in head first and you don't know any backstory whatsoever, being a Game of Thrones fan myself and reading the books, yeah. there's a lot of stuff that yeah. is going to happen in this season that does reference back more so than the other seasons to right for the previous season. So you need that institutional knowledge. You do. You do. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Thanks for the four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Let's talk to Jody on a car phone. Jody, good morning. Uh, Jeff, hi. Hi. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Thanks for calling. Uh, so I did this sort of with The Walking Dead. Um, so my husband has been watching it since the very beginning, um, and one of my best friends uh, also is very much into the show. Right. So at the beginning of last fall, there was a significant buildup to uh, the opening episode. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go ahead and try to jump into this. But I cheated a little bit because what they did prior to the start of last season was they had a two-hour episode where they did a synopsis of every season up until last season. That was enough for me to be able to start with last season. Right. Now, once, once last season stopped, I went back and binged on okay. one through six. Got it. So I think for anything, you do have to at some point get some background, like the last caller said. Right. Yeah. It's it's, it's and like I say. I mean, I'm intentionally avoiding it because I want to read the books, and I just I, I don't. I, I don't want to know what's going to happen. If I'm going to commit to all the time to reading the books, I, I just I don't want to know what's going to end up happening. But I, it's interesting. One of the reasons, because candidly, Jody, that I, I, I'm the one person in America who doesn't watch The Walking Dead, I'm convinced. But but part of it is I, I didn't get into it in the beginning, and now I'm in that same situation you were talking about. Is this now so daunting? It's six or seven years in. I have no idea who the characters are, and I'm not sure I want to invest enough time Given all the other stuff that's out there, trying to catch up, you know, to figure out. No, and I'm and I'm so not uh, necessarily a TV, you know, right. fan. I don't spend a lot of time on it. Nor have I ever binged watched anything. <laughs> right. But I'll tell you what: you start The Walking Dead, and you will binge watch it. All right. Okay. Well, they, I, I, you know, I know. Thanks. I mean, I know a lot of people love that. I a, a little bit of zombie stuff goes a long way with me. But I understand The Walking Dead is about more than that. In any event, however you decide, Game of Thrones, which is one of the most talked about TV series around, um, making its triumphant return. It, it puts back on HBO. And I guess if you don't know what all the excitement is about, you have to decide. Do you jump right in? Do you just wait till it's all over, or? Like me, do you just kind of commit yourself to saying, I'm committed to these books and I'm not going to watch the thing until after that? you got to decide. It's 1128. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 1136, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. We will continue to keep you updated about uh, what's going on in the freeway. But the bottom line is um, I-94 eastbound in Delafield. It is closed. There is a multi-car accident, flight for life, all those types of things. And it's going to be closed for the foreseeable future, meaning not just minutes but a couple hours. Um, So if you're, again, moving eastbound and you want to get to Brookfield or downtown Milwaukee or whatever, uh, you, you don't want to be on the freeway. That's just the bottom line of this. The Wednesday after baseball's All-Star Game tends to be one of the slowest sports days of the year. So what's on the opposite end of the spectrum? What's the best single day on your sports calendar? To think about that. Greg Matzik shares his selection and take yours, takes yours as well. That's tonight on Sports Central 735. Huh, I, I, I have to think about that. Uh, Hondo says the Super Bowl. 
Yeah, and there, but see, there's also a lot going on. It's Super Bowl weekend. You've got the there's always the golf tournament. Whether there's the Phoenix Open golf tournament that's big, um, you've got college basketball. You've got NBA basketball. You've got hockey. If you're into hockey, you've got all those things. That would certainly there, there's a lot that's going around there. I think the fall, and I'd, I'd have to think of a particular weekend right around the World Series. That's always pretty cool too because you've got the NFL football that's going. You've got college football that's going. If you are like me, and to my friends who mock me, if you if you follow like English Premier League soccer, like I do, go Liverpool. Um, there, you know, that's going on. You've got the World Series. So that's there's there's some fun times. I'd have to I'd have to think about that. But I would say that that October, early October, when you got the World Series, certainly the Super Bowl would be one of those times. Um, might be a couple others, but you got a chance. Greg's going to be talking about that at seven thirty-five today. All right, there is. And, and we have talked about this before. There is, has been and continues to be a, a strong movement out there pushing to either not just decriminalize, but to legalize the use of marijuana. And the argument is, look, it's a it's no more dangerous than alcohol and alcohol is legal. As a matter of fact, it might be less dangerous. People are smoking the stuff anyways. We're wasting law enforcement resources trying to you know, catch people that are doing this. It is harmless. We'd be much better just legalizing it and taxing it and getting a revenue source. Okay, so you've got you've got that argument that's out there. I don't want to discuss marijuana. I want to talk about other drugs. Um, the Oregon legislature is essentially considering passing a law which would decriminalize possession, not of marijuana, but would decriminalize possession of heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, LSD, and all sorts of other drugs. Essentially, anything that the federal government describes as like a Schedule One or Schedule Two drug, heavy drugs, heroin, cocaine, crack cocaine, methamphetamine, you name it, none of those for possession of small amounts would be illegal. Dealing would presumably still be legal, would be illegal. But if, and it's the same rationale that goes with legalizing marijuana. What the heck? People have the right to choose to do what they want to do. Why should we waste law enforcement resources on this type of thing? You know, people who are drug users, what they really need is they need, um, they, they don't need to have a conviction on the record if they get caught shooting heroin. It could influence their future lives. Why don't we just say, let's treat Let's treat heroin use. Let's treat cocaine use. Let's treat crack cocaine use. Let's treat um, you know crystal meth users. Let's let's treat it as a public health matter and let's decriminalize it. Let's get law enforcement out of this. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text line. Now feel free to disagree with me. I believe, even though I don't support legalizing marijuana, I accept that reasonable people can disagree on that issue. Maybe this is my background as a former drug prosecutor, but to to decriminalize the use of incredibly addictive, dangerous drugs like crack cocaine or heroin or methamphetamine, I think would be the height of irresponsibility. The truth of the matter is the fact that the stuff is illegal, I think, does in fact deter some people from doing it. Anyone who's ever seen 
how addictive heroin is, how addictive crack cocaine is, how addictive methamphetamine is, and how that destroys families. We are not talking about harmless recreational drug use. You do not use crack cocaine recreationally. You do not use heroin recreationally. And anything that I think takes away, uh, again, some of the, the criminal penalties, I think that makes it more likely that people will do it. It makes it more likely that people will get hooked. I think from a public policy perspective, I, it, and I understand we've got an opioid crisis in this country. Believe me, I, I get that. But simply saying, let's just decriminalize it and let the chips fall where they may, I think is the height of your responsibility. 414-799-1620. But should we go that route? Should we just simply say, hey, if you want to shoot heroin, shoot heroin. You want to take crack cocaine, take crack cocaine, don't worry. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 1142. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 1146, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. We, we talk a lot about legalizing marijuana. In Oregon, there's a bill been introduced which would, not talk about marijuana, it would decriminalize heroin use, cocaine use, methamphetamine, you name it. Um, if you got caught shooting up heroin, there wouldn't be criminal penalties. You could get a ticket, you know, here, $50, $200 ticket, whatever it would be. I think this would be absolutely disastrous. I am willing to concede that reasonable people can disagree about decriminalizing or legalizing marijuana. I, the, the idea that we are going to take law enforcement out of the equation when it comes to heroin or crack cocaine, highly addictive, highly dangerous things, I think it would lead to much more drug use. Given the addictive nature of it, I think it would lead to a lot more addicts, and that is the last damn thing we need in this country, more people hooked on heroin and methamphetamine and crack cocaine. But that's just me. Let's start with Tony and Brown Deer. Tony, you're first. Good morning. Tony? Oh, I'm sorry. Um, all right. Uh, that's Stephen Appleton. Steve, I hit the wrong button. Steve, good morning. Good morning, Jeff. Uh, just uh, um, I'm in agreement with you. I mean, we don't want to fully decriminalize these dangerous drugs. I know we're not talking about marijuana, but I am full of support of legalization of that. But if you take the people who are addicted to the dangerous stuff, um, is I don't know if programs are in place in certain states, mm -hmm. but um, the way we handle drunk driving is in this state is though if it's your first offense, you know you go to you go to treatment and you you know you're you're not as heavily penalized. The the severe penalties for heroin and that sort of thing, given the prevalence of this and the fact that most people it's more of an addictive nature of the drug than a moral failing. Why don't we? give them sort of uh, an opportunity before we put them in jail why don't we give them an opportunity before you know hey you've been caught with heroin or you know you we, we rescued you from an overdose we we need to not only you know we need to get you into treatment immediately well i see and I, I don't disagree but the, the truth is the, the truth is you you catch somebody who's using cocaine just a, it's a plain drug user and i'm not i'm not talking about somebody who's dealing or reselling that person's not going to jail anyways the first time that person's not going to prison there's this kind of myth out there that oh where the, the prisons are filled with you know the the the, the first time drug use that that's not the case you got to work to get thrown in into prison so we're not we're not doing that as a general rule that the bigger argument is well you get caught with possession of the drug it's something on your record maybe it, it hurts you but but at the same time i guess where i come down with is 
heroin, cocaine, things like that, it's not marijuana. It, it's, it's, it's not. Addictive, dangerous, destructive. And I firmly believe that if you reduce the sanctions on this, that's going to make it more likely that people will use it. Now, I understand that people use this all now, but if there's no penalties at all, it's more likely that people are going to use it. And the truth of the matter is, there's lots of people, because of the addictive nature of these drugs, that you use it that first time, and, and you're, you're, you're going to be addicted. Oh, no, that never happens. It does happen. These drugs are different than it's not the same as having, you know, that glass of whiskey. It's not the same as having the beer. It's not the same as smoking that joint. Heroin is different. Cocaine is different. Methamphetamine is different. Kara and Racine, you're on 620 WTMJ. Kara. Yes. Hi. Hi, Kara. Good morning. Good morning. Hi. Yeah, I really don't believe we should decriminalize the use of heroin or opiate use or, or methamphetamines or anything else for that matter. Yeah, it, well, it's just, I, I mean, I, I see, I think if you decriminalize it, if you legalize it, if you do whatever, inevitably more people are going to use it. That's just first, and that, and that is the last thing we need, more people using these drugs and getting addicted to the drugs and uh, not knowing uh, how to get off. Yeah, Definitely. It leads to so many other problems, right. not just using the drugs, family problems, issues, uh, health problems, medical problems, uh, criminal problems, sure. you know, because people will be stealing to support their habits. Oh, oh, yeah. Know? I mean, you, you, you get hooked on heroin earlier on, and, and yeah. What, you don't what, care. What, right. You yeah, what are you going to do? Yeah, it's not like you're going to be able to hold down a job. No, no thanks to call. And, again, that's why I, I, I always make the distinction between, you know, marijuana. Again, I oppose legalizing marijuana. I have different reasons for that. But as somebody who worked firsthand and saw the addictive nature of these, what I'm going to call the harder drugs, um, you know, it's just, and, and how they just devastate communities and devastate individuals. I, I just, anything you do to lessen the stigma or the consequences of doing this, I think is a bad idea. Debbie in Milwaukee. Debbie, good morning. You're on 620 WTMJ. Hi. Hi, Debbie. I am totally against them decriminalizing this. I am speaking from experience. I am a mother of a heroin addicted daughter. Hmm. I've seen what it does to her. To my family, um, to her child that she just abandoned, it is totally, totally not the right thing to do. I think penalties should be stiffer. There's, there's always room. I mean, and if, if it takes, you know, getting caught with the heroin and having your child end up in prison, then at least I, as a mother, know where my child is, and I'm not going to have the police come and tell me one day. That they found her dead of an overdose. Um, can I ask you? I mean, how 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 long, Debbie, has your has your daughter been using heroin? Um, it's been her her son was born a year ago. She started right after that, and right now she's been in and out of treatment. Um, she's in another hospital with sepsis and septic shock. We're lucky she didn't die from that. It's just devastating. And right now, I am raising my grandson. And and it's just what, what, what sometimes people don't understand. Again, it they, they they drugs aren't harmless. I mean, these hard drugs aren't harmless. They are incredibly addictive. Um, you know, people start, they can't stop, they can't function. 
their lives spiral out of control. And like you're talking about, it's not just that person's life that spirals out of control. It's, you know, you're taking care of your grandson. And I can just tell from the pain in your voice, you know, the horror that you go through on a daily basis, not knowing where your daughter is and, and wanting to help out but not being able to because of the addiction. It is that, and then you have to face the feeling with, uh, you know, okay, enough, enough, you're not welcome in my home anymore, you know. Right. And then she up late every night wondering, is she alive, is she dead, oh, yeah. what's going on, and it is. I mean, and if they want to give a slap on the wrist, they're going to have, the eviction is there now. It is an epidemic. It's going to be worse if they decriminalize it. Yeah, I, um, thanks for the call. I, I, you know, I was, I think, I, I was moderating a couple of these, the, these opioid abuse things over the course of the last couple of years. And, and, you, and you hear these families that just talk about, you know, good, good kids, good young people who end up getting hooked on this stuff. And then, um, you know, the mom or dad or whatever that they, they find that, that the kids are stealing everything they possibly can to support the habit. It just, it, it just ends up being a nightmare. I'm sorry. We have a lot of compelling calls, but I'm kind of up against the clock. Um, bottom line is, this is one of the reasons I can't be a libertarian. Actually, I got I've t- got a c- couple texts from some people who who seem to believe that the government has no business in telling you what you do with your own body. Well, the, the problem is that you know in some cases, for example, hard drug use, it it doesn't just affect you; it affects your family, it affects your community in general. And I firmly, 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 firmly believe that by decriminalizing this hard drug use, you will encourage other people to do it. You'll take out the stigma. It is incredibly bad public policy. It might be on the verge of happening in Oregon. I am confident it's not going to happen in Wisconsin anytime soon. 